0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, I am going to make sure that my microphone is on so Dave doesn't come up and try to kiss me again like he did a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> uh, couple of uh, additional, well, one additional announcement for those of you who are attending our membership classes. Uh, today is the day we are going to have uh, our first membership class this afternoon right after service. Uh, We'll be meeting in the room next to the library after that room is cleared. uh, The ushers go in, they uh, do a count of the offering, and then when they're done, we'll go in, save a few minutes to get something to drink uh, and uh, get ready for that. Um, Working on trying to get lunch in, but uh, if I can't, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Also want to say a really huge thank you to my beautiful wife, Wendy, Uh, for uh, following the the Holy Spirit's guidance last week and just giving a a heartfelt, spirit-filled message while Josh and I were in Florida. Uh, If you weren't here, uh, check out the message on the YouTube channel or on the website. It was phenomenal. Uh, So thank you, uh, my beautiful wife, who's behind the camera today. But this morning, we are continuing on our journey with Jesus. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we watched as Jesus called some fishermen to come and follow him. And we watched them leave everything behind, including a huge, life-changing fortune worth of fish to do just that, to follow Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to be following Jesus. We're going to head with him And his mother and some of his disciples to a wedding in a town called cana and we read about this wedding in the gospel of john uh, chapter 2 starting in verse 1 on the third day we're going to stop right there on the third day we want to find out what, what happened before the third day because you know This is the third day, what happened on days one and two. And to find that out, we need to go back to chapter one of John a little bit. And what we're gonna see is we're gonna see him actually calling some more disciples to him. Uh, He already has Simon, he has Andrew, James, and John. And now, the next day, this is prior to the wedding, Jesus, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. So we meet Philip. Uh, he lived in the same place as Andrew and, and Simon Peter in a town called Bethsaida, which is on the east bank of the River Jordan, just to give you guys kind of some geography. And that's where Jesus was baptized, the River Jordan. So we're, he, he lived on the east bank. Galilee is on the west bank. So he didn't find Philip at home. He found him traveling. He found him probably uh, hanging out with his friend Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael. And Nathanael was from a small town in Galilee called Cana, which is just about six miles north of Nazareth. And it's apparent that Philip and Nathanael are friends. Uh, It's likely Philip found him in Cana or somewhere around there, probably at home. But Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's obvious Nathanael does not think highly of Nazareth, just six short miles away. It's kind of like, a ravens fan saying can anything good come out of pittsburgh right oh no no it's not vice versa no no but even though nathaniel has made this rather insulting remark philip said to him come and see can you imagine the excitement that Philip has at this point he's just met Jesus he's just decided to follow him he is so excited to introduce his friend to Jesus even though he wants to maybe badmouth where Jesus is from maybe he doesn't believe that Philip has actually found the messiah and anything good come out of Nazareth and Philip says come and see he is very excited here. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. So, Philip, Nathaniel, they got up, they walked towards where Jesus was. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And we don't have time to go into everything about Nathaniel and the deceit thing today, but we will in the future. But Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the King of Israel, Because Nathaniel knew that Philip had to come looking for him. Philip didn't know where he was. Philip couldn't possibly have told Jesus, "Yo, Jesus, uh, Nathaniel, he's going to be sitting under a fig tree because that's basically what all he does all day is just sit under fig trees." He didn't know those things, but Jesus knew where he was. And of course, Jesus was far enough away that he couldn't possibly have seen Nathaniel with his physical eyes but he knew where nathaniel was and nathaniel answered that knowing with rabbi you are the son of god you are the king of israel and jesus answered him because i said to you i saw you under the fig tree do you believe you will see greater things than these Nathanael had this massive change of heart. He had an experience with Jesus that nobody else, to his knowledge, had had. Jesus knew him before he even met him. And Nathanael starts to follow Jesus. And that brings us to this third day in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus is not the main character in this story right now. Mary is the main character in this story. Mary is the one who had been invited to this wedding. Mary was there. And this is kind of a huge deal. We're going to find out in a couple of minutes why. But it's likely that Jesus and his disciples, when, Je- when Mary found out that Jesus had come to Cana, it's very likely that Mary asked the family, hey, can Jesus and his friends come to the wedding? And of course, they said yes. So Mary was the one who knew the family. Mary is the one, she either knew the, the, the bride or the bridegroom or one of their families. So they must have been close. Either way, uh, Mary was just close with this family. I wanna talk a little bit about first-century marriage because it does not look the way that it looks today. Uh, Most of you remember your weddings if you're married. How many of you remember your weddings? Men, you better get those hands up high, right? How many of you remember your anniversary date? Well, not as many, <laughs> all right. Men, you better get your hands up. Women don't have to remember. Men have to remember. Uh, Bob's son just got married. Uh, Bob and Renee's son just got married on or 2-22-22 at 2-22 p.m. He better remember that anniversary date, right? And we remember that anniversary date because it is a date. It is a day. Now back in Jesus' time, a marriage usually took about a year to happen. So usually the father of the bride would arrange for and agree to terms of marriage for his daughter with a bridegroom. And the bride and the bridegroom, once everything was, was kind of arranged, they would become what is called betrothed. Don't blame me for the way people were back in uh, Jesus' time. I know we don't much arrange marriages anymore, although I bet some of us, especially fathers of daughters, wish we could arrange marriages, but this is the way it happened. In ancient times, marriage was looked on more as an alliance for reasons of survival or for practicality. The concept of romantic love, if, It came into it at all, was at least a secondary kind of thing. You didn't get married for love. And that's what we see today, right? We get married for love. No, they got married so they wouldn't die. They got married so that they could survive whatever was going on. So marriage was, and I'm sorry again for this, marriage was a business arrangement romantic love hopefully would grow over time but that's not why people got married but once this arrangement was complete and uh, the 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 bride and the bridegroom at, or the bride's father and the bridegroom agreed the couple would individually be immersed in water this cleansing ritual of being immersed in water and this kind of brings us maybe a picture of baptism right this cleansing ritual so that both of them are cleansed for one another and then the couple would meet under this marriage canopy called a hoopa and they would finalize the marriage contract and a lot of times this would mean nice expensive gifts from the bridegroom to the bride so yay at least you know you get something out of it although gifts would also be given to the bride's family the brothers and the sisters and the mom and the dad and all of those people but this was a big kind of deal at that time the couple was legally married but they didn't live together they would live separately for probably a year maybe a little bit more than a year the woman would live with her family and of course Because of the way things were, they didn't have text, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook Messenger, like when Wendy wants to find out if my flight is delayed, and she'll say, hey, what you doing, and you're still at the airport. They didn't have any of that stuff. And the groom would go away, and the bride and the bride's family, sometimes they wouldn't know when the bridegroom would be coming back but they knew it would probably be about a year, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But the bride and her family would spend this year preparing for the, 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 the rest of the marriage, right? She was still legally married. They're getting ready, they're preparing. And you women know what I'm talking about. When you prepare for your wedding day, right? You spend a lot of time and you fret over a lot of things And men go golfing and stay out of your way and just basically say, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear. And that's the way it is. But in that time, women would prepare. They would be uh, doing all kinds of things to get ready to live apart from their mother and their father. And in the meantime, the man would go off and the man would prepare a place for them to live. Sometimes this meant buying land, uh, maybe building a house, uh, definitely making sure that he had uh, you know, his own business affairs in order so that he could financially support his wife and later his family. So he was doing all of these things to get ready for this woman to come and share their lives together. And then after about a year, the bridegroom would finally come back and collect his bride and again this is not my language so don't i, I want to have any women come up to me afterwards and like stab me in the eye or anything but the bride the bridegroom would come back collect his bride and when the bridegroom came there was this huge just amount of fanfare and music and dancing in the streets, everybody was so excited that the bridegroom had finally come to collect his bride so that they could start living together and get out of dad's house. And when they came back together, they would gather again under this hoopah, this, this marriage canopy, to finalize the, the marriage, to finalize everything. And when the ceremony was over, there would be a wedding feast. And we're not talking about a wedding reception for which most of you spent, let's, let's face it, six months to a year planning the wedding day and the wedding reception. Anybody spend about that much time? How many of you spent much less time than that? How many of you spent much more time than that? Right, we spend all of this time getting ready for this one day, right? But this was not a wedding reception like we have today where we go and we get dressed up and we gather for a few hours and watch the wedding and then go and we eat and then we drink and we sing Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond and we do the electric slide and we leave our gifts and we go home, right? It's like a six-hour thing that, that we do, right? Wedding feasts in Jesus' time typically lasted for seven days. An entire Week and every single day, there would be at least one feast where every one of the people who came to celebrate this marriage would come and eat and drink and just celebrate the immense joy that these couples and their families were feeling. So that was that was marriage in jesus's time it was not entered into ill-advisedly or lightly there were a lot of decisions made there were a lot of things that happened there were a lot of preparations that both sides made i want to leave this wedding here we're going to leave jesus and his disciples in cana for a little bit we're going to come back to him Uh, and and them a little bit later but i want to turn our focus to a different passage in scripture for the rest of our time this morning ephesians chapter 5 and in ephesians chapter 5 we read about uh, marriage and paul writes to the ephesians wives submit to your own husbands this is in the bible no stabbing as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, you are not off the hook. Well, maybe you are because my slides won't work. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up himself for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word there's that idea of washing with water again in this marriage ceremony so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Paul had a couple of different reasons for writing this passage to the Ephesians, this letter that he was writing to them. He did. He wanted to give marital counseling advice to the members of the church because apparently something was going wrong men were not loving their wives as christ loved the church women were not submitting to their husbands as we submit to christ something was wrong and paul wanted to write to them about this but i don't want to focus on that part of it today I want to focus on the overarching idea of Paul's writing here. And we find that in the next couple of verses. Let's read on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2 when God instituted marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is the point that Paul wanted to make. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Read that again. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul demonstrates here that the husband and wife relationship is the same relationship that Christ has with his church. And now that we've seen a glimpse kind of of the nature of marriage in the time of Christ and of Paul, maybe we can open our our, our eyes and our hearts just a little bit to see just how important it is that Christ is the bridegroom To our bride. It's not just another example. Paul is not just writing another metaphor. Although it is a good metaphor. What Paul is writing is the culmination of the work of God in creation. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the work of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the resurrection of our souls when we come to faith in him. That is what Paul is writing about here. God created human beings, and He created them to be relational. He created them to be in relationship, not just with each other, but in relationship with Him. And our relationship with Him was broken in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It brought sin and death to humanity. And so the Son of God left the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven and He came to live among humans as a human. His one goal, His one Purpose was to implore humanity to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is Jesus' overarching message throughout all of his ministry, through the entire gospel repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to mend the broken relationship between humans. And the Father. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And it makes me sick when people use this to try to scare people into becoming saved. It really does, because that's not what it means. It means that Jesus came here to make a marriage arrangement. Jesus is the bridegroom of humanity. Remember earlier I said in ancient times marriage was looked upon as more of a, a an alliance for reasons of practicality or survival. Jesus came to arrange our survival. Jesus came to arrange our spiritual survival. We read on in Hebrews chapter 9, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. Does that sound familiar? When we talked about marriage, who is eagerly awaiting the bridegroom's return? It's us, the bride. Jesus' death on the cross happened so that he could bear our sins. Those sins that humanity brought on themselves in the Garden of Eden. And by bearing those sins, Jesus erased our debt to the Father. He made a business arrangement. He made an agreement. I am going to die so that all of these people, if they believe in me, have their debts wiped clean and then I'm going to take them to myself as my bride. Jesus was working to present us in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. He wiped our debt clean and his resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit, defeated death and gave us the promise of resurrection ourselves, of eternal life with him. And that is where we are right now. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we are in that period of marriage between the betrothal and the wedding feast, the ceremony that period where we belong to our bridegroom, Jesus, but we are not yet living with him. And why aren't we living with him? What's Jesus doing? He tells us in John chapter 14 exactly what he's doing. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Jesus is coming for his bride. And he is right now preparing everything so that we might have eternal life. And he's going to come back. To much fanfare, we read in Revelation that the trumpets will sound The music will sound. The angels will sing around the throne of God when Jesus comes to collect his bride. So that's what Jesus is doing. What is it that the bride, the church, what is it that we're supposed to be doing right now? We are supposed to be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour we do not expect. Just like the bridegroom. We don't know exactly when he's coming back. So we need to be ready at all times. And how do we remain ready? There's many ways that we remain ready. The first is that we're supposed to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. Christ wants all people to come to him. To believe in him. To become a part of the body that is the church. He wants them to become his bride. And as the church, and this is church universal and it is also church morning hour, chapel church, we are Christ's representatives. We are how all nations hear the gospel. And become disciples and we must stop being timid when it comes to sharing the good news of Christ with people and by and large the church has become awfully timid we are also supposed to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven our good works Include feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, ministering to the sick, visiting the prisoner, talking to the stranger, and taking him in if that is what is required of us. It basically means that the entire time that the bridegroom is away preparing a place for us, the bride is doing everything, everything that she can do to meet the basic human needs Of people all people everywhere all the time we're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven there's some Christians being persecuted today right now this very second in Ukraine in Libya in China In all kinds of countries where they would squelch the word of God. Where they would not have people say the name Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to pray for those people. We're supposed to pray for those who are persecuting our fellow believers. That's just weird. That is a weird attitude to have. That's a weird thing for Jesus to ask. My brothers and sisters across the the world are being killed and you want me to pray for the people that are pulling the trigger? Yes. That is exactly what Jesus wants us to do because he ends this particular passage with this, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we look at that word perfect and it really trips us up. What do you... (laughs) We can't be perfect. It's impossible. We're human beings. We make mistakes. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. If we read this passage, Jesus tells us that we must be perfect. We must be like God. Well, this is not making it any better, is it? This is getting a little more challenging. How can we be like God? By loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. God's enemies are anyone who continues to embrace the sin of the world. James 4.4 tells us, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 2 Peter 3.9, on the other hand, tells us that God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a really huge paradox from God. He has enemies, and he doesn't want anything bad to happen to any one of them. Can we say the same? If we can't, we're not perfect like God is perfect, and we need to be. What is being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect is this, that we desire for every person on earth to reach repentance. To become a friend of God rather than an enemy of God. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus' message. And if we desire for each person to reach repentance, what are we going to do? Hopefully we're going to pray for them. We're going to love them. We're going to care for their physical and mental and emotional needs. We will love them as God loves them because we will love them as God loves us. We need to care that people are enemies of God let me say that again we need to care that people are enemies of God we need to make the conscious decision to say that if they are that important to the father they have to be that important to me they have to be if God wishes if God wills that all should reach repentance then that should be my primary mission to find anyone who is an enemy of God and to live a life that points people to Him, live a life that points to my own repentance, to my own relationship with God and shows them that that is the good way. And yes, that will also call for me to care for them physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Spiritually. There are close to 7.9 billion people in the world today. This was as of the beginning of February. They made this estimate. There are 7.9 billion people in the world today. And almost 2.4 billion of those people claim the title of Christian. Even if all 2.4 billion were truly, authentically Christ followers... Christ's disciples and we know they're not all but even if they were 2.4 billion of them that leaves 5.5 billion people who are not 5.5 billion people in this world who do not know Christ and let me give you another number over 2 billion of those people have never heard the name of Jesus they have never heard the gospel. They are what we call unreached. They do not have anyone around them to bring them the message of the gospel. And who knows, that number might be closer to 3 billion now. Now, if that number is daunting, and I know we talk in billions, and that number seems just like, whoo, I, I can't do anything about it. Billions and billions of people. Let me bring it closer to home. Adams County has a population of 103,000 people. 103,000. Do you know how many of those do not claim any religious affiliation at all? 56,000. 55% of Adams County does not know Christ. Is not in a relationship with God the Father. Think about this. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to the bank, when you go to work, when you go to school, one out of every two people that you meet doesn't know God. One out of two. Now that's a number we can work with. We know how to care for ourselves. We know how to care for each other here in this building. And we've even made a good start at caring for some of the people in our community and some of the people around the world. But it's time, church. It is time, Morning Hour Chapel, to take things to a much higher level. And the rest of what I'm going to say today is going to scare some of you. It might even keep you from continuing to come here. It is time to start truly and deeply caring that 56,000 people just in our county do not have a relationship with God. and the numbers are staggering over 20% of people have never heard the name of Jesus in the United States except in movies when his name is used in vain they've never opened a bible they've never stepped foot in church and what's worse is they they don't ever plan to step foot inside of a church building and if they're not going to step inside of our building or any of the other 100 plus Church buildings in Adams County, we need to go to them. We need to leave this building, get out of this building, get out of our comfort zones. Because we are comfortable. We live very comfortable lives. How can I be comfortable when I know that 56,000 people? Will not know eternal life in Jesus Christ. We need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We need to care. Not just say we care, we need to look at one out of every two people that we encounter in our lives. and realize that God wants them to. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you know this was a hard message to write. It's a harder message to deliver, and I am having no doubt that it is a, an almost impossible message to hear. Father, we have been comfortable for so long. Maybe we've closed our eyes to those people who you want in relationship with you. And maybe we haven't. Maybe we see them and we just don't know what to do, we don't know how to share the gospel with them in a way that will point them to you. Father, we pray that you will use Sunday mornings and Sunday schools and classes and discussions to help us to become ready. To help us to step outside of this building on Sunday morning and look at the world around us and care that so many don't know. Father, we pray that you will show us as this church body what you want us to do and that you will give us a spirit of boldness and remove the spirit of fear and complacency that may have been holding us back. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're already a, third, or a, a sixth of the way through 2022. I know, it sounds incredible. And we have work to do. By the end of March, actually hopefully on March 19th, I'm going to be sending out an email this week asking all of our ministry leaders, our deacons, our church board to gather here at the church for a morning of prayer, a morning of discussion, a morning of planning, a morning hour chapel and start to reach 56,000 people in Adams County. As you go away this week, as you go through the month of March, getting started in Lent this Wednesday, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Question number one, how much do I truly care that 56,000 people in Adams County do not know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And question number two, how much are you willing to do about it? God bless you this week.